We are in Isaiah 25 today, the second of four chapters in what some call Isaiah's Apocalypse or the Little Apocalypse. And I was impressed to say something up front this morning, because you come here, for example, last week and hear me preach a sermon on Isaiah 24, explaining imagery, citing cross-references, highlighting this, applying that. Then you show up this week, and I'm doing all that in Isaiah 25. And it may appear to you, I just know this stuff. Can crack open Isaiah anytime, anywhere, and just take off. I assure you that is not the case. Last week, after church and some nice Mother's Day time, I ducked aside to begin to prepare this Sunday's sermon, which involves reading Isaiah 25 cold, just picking it up and reading it. Hadn't studied ahead, hadn't charted it out, plopped open my Bible to Isaiah 25 and begin to read. And I had no idea what it meant. Not only did I not know what he was saying, I wasn't even sure what he was talking about. Hardly following him well enough to misunderstand him. And I share this with the intention of encouraging you. Because I'm pretty well dialed in on the background. History, geography, language. I'm primed to understand him. And I don't. And if that's my experience with the background I've got, what must it be like for those who don't have that background? The point I'm trying to make is, it may appear to you that I get Isaiah easily. It's obvious to me. I am telling you, it is not. I have to go through very basic rudimentary Bible study to bring him into focus, and that does not happen instantly. He doesn't suddenly pop into focus. It's gradual. Diagram sentences, identify thought flow, unpack images, compare translations. In this chapter, Isaiah talks about wines on the lees, and I don't know what that meant. I mean, I do now, but I had to look it up. I didn't know last week. All I'm saying is, don't let the fact that I stand up here and rattle off a bunch of, I hope, insightful and practical things about wherever we are in Isaiah. Do not let that into fool you into thinking it comes easily to me. It takes significant time and effort for me to understand him, and that understanding isn't the result of sanctified seminary knowledge. It's hands-on, nuts-and-bolts, Bible study 101, I share this as an encouragement and a challenge, because if it takes special knowledge to understand Isaiah, that sort of lets you off the hook, because you don't have the special knowledge. But if it's a matter of time and effort in basic Bible study, then you and I are on the same hook. There's actually a line coming up about this in Isaiah, or the speaks to it, or at least is quoted as speaking to it, 28.10. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The idea being knowledge and understanding comes step by step through effort and repetition. Now, is that what the verse actually means? I'm not sure. Lord willing, I'll be preaching on that passage in three weeks, so we'll see what I think. It may end up being the focus of the sermon or nothing more than a footnote. Won't know until we get there. But the principle remains whether the verse applies or not. Bottom line, I'm schlepping through Isaiah very much like you are. 
And we have schlepped all the way to chapter 25, which is a mere 12 verses. This morning we'll read the text, then step through it in overview, then focus on three distinct points within it. So here's the passage as a whole, Isaiah 25, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, for you have made a city, <coughs> excuse me, a city, a ruin, a fortified city, a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place. As heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. He will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim, and he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. Starts out sounding like a psalm. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. And it turns out that's a good way to think about it. It is a psalm, a song of praise. Praise for God's ultimate victory following, chapter 24, the end of the world. The prophet reflects on God's victory, praising him through the imagery of a city and a feast. The city was a bad thing. It was the city of human rebellion, and it needed to fall. The feast is a good thing. It's the victory celebration, the party thrown because of the city's fall. Verse 2, For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, the palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. Here the prophet envisions other peoples seeing God's victory and respecting him, fearing him in light of it. Terrible nations in the sense of cruel, ruthless nations. The point being the mighty of the earth will be impressed by God's victory. They will see he is stronger than they are, but unlike them, he is not cruel. Verse 4, for you have been a strength to the poor a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. Then in the last line of verse 4 and into verse 5, there is, I think, a glitch in the New King James translation. It reads, For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. 
You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place. As heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. We won't descend into the grammar in simple terms. The, the issue is the placement of the phrase as heat in a dry place. The New American Standard, NIV, and ESV all read that immediately after storm against the wall, and I think that's correct. The ESV, for example, reads, For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. The point being, what the New King James calls the blast of the terrible ones, and the ESV, the breath of the ruthless, is like two things. It's like a storm against the wall, and it's like heat in a dry place. Both are oppressive. That's the complete thought. Then a new sentence, you will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. (coughs) Though their breath or blast is oppressive, God subdues them, reduces the noise of aliens as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The way a cloud blocking the sun cools things off, so God subdues the noise, the tumult of foreigners. Their song is silenced. Then in verse 6, we come to the feast. One of the things the New King James tries to do is maintain the wording of the original King James as much as possible. And sometimes that's a strength, and sometimes it's a weakness. In this instance, I think it's a weakness. The New King James reading, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Here again is the ESV of verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. That is a no less accurate and much more accessible translation. Recalling the flow of Isaiah, when humanity's rebel city was destroyed in chapter 24, the lack of wine was a key theme. The new wine had failed, verse 7, they were not drinking wine with a song, verse 9, they were crying for wine in the streets, verse 11. What happened to the wine? Where had it gone? Turns out it all ends up at the victory feast. A lot of it on the lees, which is to say, well-aged. And of course, within the biblical framework, the point of wine is celebration, not inebriation. Verses 7 and 8 relay the reason for the celebration in a different image. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sorrow and death hang over humanity like a shroud. But he will remove it fully and finally for everyone. Verse 6. He will make for all people a feast. Verse 7. He will destroy the covering cast over all people. The veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8. He will wipe away tears from all faces and remove the rebuke of his people from all the earth. In the end, all shall be most well. 
And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab will be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. It's a bit odd to have Moab singled out in a passage of such universal scope. Moab was of no consequence in the grand geopolitical scene, though as a neighboring enemy of God's people, it loomed large in their minds. Verse 11, and he, that is Moab, will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim, and he, that is the Lord, will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. Moab is pictured as either supplicating or maneuvering with his hands, but to no avail, they're going down the fortress of the high fort of Yor, that is Moab's walls, he, that is the Lord, will bring down, lay low and bring to the ground, down to the dust. Thus, Isaiah 25, a song of praise for God's full and final victory. Now we're going to zero in on three factors in that victory. His plan, his purpose, and our patience. His plan, verse 1, you have done wonderful things, your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. His purpose, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And our patience, verse 9, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us, this is the Lord, we have waited for him, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So, the plan of God, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And the line, your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, is, once again, a bit thick in the New King James. It's a very literal rendering, and with the exception of your, for thy, is the exact wording of the King James. Fair enough. But I think our other main translations convey it better. The New American Standard, you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. The NIV, in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. And the ESV, you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and true. Whatever the translation... <coughs> <coughs> The practical point remains, God not only has plans, they're the plans he started out with long ago. And he's sticking with them because they're good. They're working, accomplishing wonderful things. Which may sound strange. Because whether we look around in the context back in chapter 24 where the world came to an end, or look around the world today... We see problems, lots of problems, and on the face of it, it's hard to imagine things are going according to God's plan. Weighty and profound issues intersect here, and it is foolish to speak flippantly, because we all know some pain, some loss, some suffering, and many have known great pain, great loss, great suffering. And it would be irresponsible and misleading to suggest God designed and crafted your pain, loss, and suffering into the plan 
because they were necessary for his glory. Pity your infant had to die, but glory to God. Shame about the drunk driver who crippled you, but glory to God. Yeah, cancer is really rough, but glory to God. I believe that attitude is a significant distortion of what the Bible teaches. Then there are those who, trying to reconcile the reality of evil with the goodness of God, have suggested that he's doing the best he can, he just doesn't really have the umph it takes to solve the problem. This is known as open theism, and it was popular a decade or so ago. It has, thank God, receded, but it may be back. To plan, you have to have a goal. And you have to have some sort of power to aim at the goal. We make plans, plural, because although we have no problem coming up with goals, we have a certain deficit in the power department. We're rather limited in our ability to affect things to accomplish the goal, which is why we have plan A, plan B, plan C, and so on. And they may be very good plans, but along with our alphabet of plans, we also have a saying, the best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. Now, God, of course, has a goal, and he is immeasurably better equipped in the power department than you and I are. One of my favorite biblical statements of this is in Isaiah. We passed it already. It's in chapter 14, beginning at uh, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot, then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole world. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? I love the way it's just declared, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. I love the way it's just declared, and then sort of hung out there. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Any takers on that? Still, great mystery attends the interplay of God's plan, human freedom, and evil. Here's how the Bible talks about it in the key instance, the crucifixion of Jesus. This is Peter in the initial Christian sermon, Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Acts 2.23. Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God and taken by lawless hands, crucified, and put to death. Somehow the divine plan and human choice synchronize. And this is not a one-off instance. Here's how they prayed about it in Acts chapter 4. 
For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So everybody got together to do what his purpose had determined to be done. Human will, in this case rebellious human will, in perfect resonance with the divine plan. Ephesians 1 has more to say about this, as in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. How does he do that? How does that happen? Frankly, I think that can be meaningfully explored in a way that avoids the silly errors which often accompany it, such as the idea that human choice is an illusion, or that God really doesn't have that much power. But that would involve a lengthy discussion, and we won't be pursuing it further this morning. The point from our text is God has a plan from of old, and he's sticking with it because it's working, accomplishing wonderful things. Where's it heading? What's the goal? What's his purpose? If you're familiar with biblical lingo, you know the proper answer to that question is the glory of God. The glory of God. His credit, his praise, his proper appreciation by the creatures of his creation. Yea and amen, the glory of God is the correct, complete, and ultimate goal. However, A little earlier in this sermon, I used that phrase with reference to what I called a significant distortion of what the Bible teaches, said, pity the infant had to die, but glory to God. Shame about the drunk driver who crippled you, but glory to God. In doing so, I was not saying the glory of God is not the goal. What I was trying to say is the idea that the amount of evil you endure directly correlates to the amount of glory you produce. That's the distortion. As if God, forming his plan, thought, if Chris only suffers a little, I'll only get a little glory from him. But if he suffers a lot, I'll get lots of glory, and I want lots of glory, so I am going to make sure he suffers. That's the distortion. Okay, we've talked about his plan. We are now talking about his purpose. And properly understood, the ultimate purpose is the glory of God. But I've cited verse 8 of Isaiah 25 with reference to his purpose. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That is not a statement of his ultimate purpose. In the beginning, God did not create the heavens and the earth so that he could swallow up death. In the beginning, God did not create the heavens and the earth so that he could wipe away tears. Those are not statements of his ultimate purpose, but they are statements of his proximate purpose. Swallowing up death forever is not his ultimate purpose, but it's a step toward that purpose. Wiping away tears from all faces is not his ultimate purpose, but is a step toward that purpose. And knowing us, for the self-absorbed creatures we are, He knows swallowing up death and wiping away tears is the sort of thing that gets our attention. Because we don't like to cry. 
and we don't want to die. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, 22 chapters long. And in its closing two chapters, we're given a description of the final state, the grand finale, what we popularly refer to as heaven. If you read it, you'll see earth is in play as well. A new heaven and a new earth. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. And I saw John, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's verse 4 of Revelation 21. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I don't know if that's the most beautiful verse in the Bible, but it's got to be on the short list. There's all sorts of things it isn't about. It isn't about the holiness of God. It's not about the gift of his son. It's not about salvation by faith. It's not about loving your neighbor. But what it is about, what it does say in its own way, says it all. No more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more What has death cost you? There shall be no more death. No more sorrow. Depression seems a pretty close synonym for sorrow. I googled the phrase, percent of Americans experiencing depression. The top hit was from the ADAA. That's the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, which listed the following facts. Generalized anxiety disorder affects 6.8 million adults, 3.1% of the U.S. population. Panic disorder affects 6 million, 2.7%. Social anxiety disorder affects 15 million, 6.8%. Specific phobias affect 19 million, 8.7%. Obsessive compulsive disorder affects 2.2 million, 1%. Post-traumatic stress disorder affects 7.7 million, 3.5%. Major depressive disorder affects 16.1 million, 6.7%. Totaling those numbers, 72.8 million, 32.5%. There's a lot of sorrow here. But there will be no more sorrow there. Nor crying, nor pain. This verse is in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, which is not a coincidence, because you have to go through the Apocalypse to get to that verse. 
just as we have to go through Isaiah's little apocalypse to get to chapter 25, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It goes on to say, the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And I guess the removal of the rebuke of his people is as significant as swallowing up death and wiping away tears. But for whatever reason, doesn't have the same emotive punch for me. You swallow up death and wipe away tears, I'll call that good. <clears throat> Figure I could handle whatever's left over, because with death swallowed and tears gone, it couldn't be much. Wrapping up, we've got his plan from of old, faithful and true, talked about his purpose, understood that though the ultimate purpose is the glory of God, there are steps in that journey, milestones along the way, we've called them proximate purposes, and the swallowing up of death and the wiping away of tears are among those, amen, but in case you haven't noticed, that hasn't quite happened yet not in its full and final form. There is no shortage of dying and no shortage of crying here. Which brings us to the matter of patience. (coughs) Waiting, verse 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And I beg your pardon, because I know I've done this a lot already, but once again, we're going to talk about grammar and translation. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. We have waited, past tense, that is something we have done, and he will save, future tense, that is something he will do. So we have waited and are waiting for something he will do. Simple enough. But the New American Standard and ESV translate it differently. New American Standard, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. And the ESV, almost identical, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. And their might save, instead of will save, conveys a different aspect. But it's not might in the sense of maybe he will and maybe he won't. It's might in the sense of purpose. The process is occurring to facilitate the result, like I'm preaching this sermon that you might understand Isaiah 25, or you put a roast in the oven this morning that you might eat it for lunch. You say, okay, what's the point? Well, we're not done yet, because other translations bring out yet a different aspect. The NIV, surely this is our God, we trusted in him, and he saved us. They've got everything in the past. So does the NET. Look, here is our God. We waited for him, and he delivered us. In those translations, it's already occurred. He's already saved slash delivered. So which one is right? Are we waiting to be saved? Or is waiting the process of our salvation? Or have we already been saved? This is the point. The relationship between waiting and being saved isn't one-dimensional. It's not like waiting in the doctor's office or waiting at the DMV. I think it would be helpful here to consider the different tenses of salvation in the New Testament, by which I mean 
I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Those are all true. I have been saved past, Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I am being saved. Present, 2 Corinthians 2.15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And... I will be saved. Future. Romans 13, 11, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It hasn't happened yet, but it's getting closer. I understand we are near, if not in, deep weeds at this point. point I'm trying to make is our patience is not the patience of waiting at the DMV. It's active, it's participatory. The waiting is part of the process. We can look back on God's plan, his counsels of old. They are rock solid. There will be no change of plans. We can look ahead to his purpose. Ultimately, his glory, understanding our benefit, our joy, our salvation, are all part of his glory as are the swallowing up of death, and the wiping away of tears. So, it's all good looking back, and it's all good looking ahead, but here we are in between, and maybe it's not quite all so good. Waiting. And I'm just trying to convey that our waiting is active. It is itself part of the process. The word translated wait... Uh, Kava is used about 50 times in the Old Testament. 15 of those are in Isaiah. And it's with another in- instance of his usage that will close. In chapter 40, verses 30 and 31, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait, those who kava on the Lord, will renew their strength They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We won't be running forever. We won't be walking forever. He's bringing us to the conclusion where there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. But we're not there yet. Still got some death. Still got some sorrow, still got some crying, still got some pain to endure. And we need to do that patiently, actively, waiting on the Lord. He will renew our strength to mount us up with wings like eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you, we look back, and we know from the beginning, from before the beginning, your counsels are faithfulness and truth. Your plans are good, and we are just so glad to be part of it. Lord, we look ahead to the future, your glory, the proper appreciation of you from us and from the creation, and what a delight that will be 
No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Lord, we're in between. It's where we live. And we thank you that we know where we're headed. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we wait on you, lean on you, patiently endure. Lord, would you empower us? Would you show us how we can mount up with wings as eagles, how we can run and not be weary, walk and not faint? In Jesus' name, amen.